The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to Season 2 of Students of Mind, the podcast where we aim to normalize conversations about mental health. Last season, we connected you with experts in the field of mental health to provide an understanding of topics and illnesses that may not have been easily accessible. This season, we will continue our learning journey together by not only speaking to experts, but also by listening to the voices and stories of real people who are living, surviving, and even thriving while also facing challenges with their mental health in their everyday life. This season, we want to hear your stories to get the full truth of what it's like to manage one's mental health and navigate living with mental illness. I'm your host, Jade, and on today's episode, we will be starting a discussion around psychiatric medications. There is a significant amount of stigma around taking psych meds, and there is much debate about whether or not people should take these medications. For this short series, I hope to give you all insight on the different opinions about psych meds, explain some of the stigma, talk about the history of psychiatry, and share the experiences of individuals who actually take these medications. For this first discussion, I sit down with Dr. Alex Dimitriou and Dr. Chris Capel to talk about the basics around psychiatric medications and a little bit about why there is so much stigma. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. Today's discussion features two guests who are former colleagues, Dr. Alex Dimitriou and Dr. Chris Capel. In our discussion, we talk about what psychiatric medications are and how they work, a bit of the history of the field of psychiatry, and the collaboration between psychiatry and therapy. Dr. Dimitriou and Dr. Capel explain why they think there is so much stigma around taking psych meds and debunk some of the common myths that exist about them. So, good morning, welcome. Um, Before we get started, can you guys introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Sure. So uh, my, my name is Alex Dimitriou. I, uh, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist who's also boarded in, uh, in sleep medicine. So I, I do a mix of psychiatry and, and sleep medicine uh, with, you know, a, a focus on the whole, you know, taking into account people's psychological factors, um, but also at times diving into the pharmacology and into the uh, internal wirings that make us act in certain ways or in ways that we do um, with a focus on, on sleep while we do all that in the hopes of just kind of uh, optimizing things from every possible angle. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think we aim for in, in my work is just uh, uh, helping people achieve their peak performance uh, 
uh, through the optimization of uh, how we perform during the night in our sleep and how we perform during the day in our, in our waking lives. Uh, my name is uh, Chris Capel, and I'd have to say I'm in sort of a transient partial retirement at this point, um, uh, limited practice, but in I've been in practice more or less over the last 30 plus years in a general psychiatric practice, uh, combining uh, pharmacology and psychotherapy for, uh, formats. Um, I'm <clears throat> currently uh, running two groups and, um, and enjoying this along the way and collaborating with my colleagues like Alex. And uh, I'm here to support the, this discussion. Great, thank you. Um, so today's topic, as you guys know, is gonna be about psychiatric medications and some of the stigma that exists around them. I think for a lot of people that aren't already taking psychiatric medications or <laughs> learning about them in school or know people who are taking them have very little idea of what they are, their purpose, um, and much information past what's seen in the media and, and movies and how these medications are portrayed um, through those things. Um, so my goal for this episode is kind of just to give an overview of like what they are, what they're used for, and um, talk about some of the stigma that exists and, you know, the different sides of the debate that there are around these medications. Um, so I guess my first question is just in general, what are psychiatric medications and like, um, you know, what are they used for and how are they different in the way that they wor uh, work in the body f compared to other types of medications? So for, for me, um, you know, I, I think one of the best things we can do in psychiatry is to help people better understand themselves. Um, and, and I think what happens is in the, in the world of mental health, it, things can get so jumbled and so confusing. And at least what, what gives me a lot of um, a lot of satisfaction in my work is helping people sort of narrow down what exactly is wrong. And fortunately, I can tell you in, in the realm of psychiatry, there's not really that many things that can go wrong. Sure, on the surface, they may look more complicated, but underneath, you know, our, our main diagnoses that I think we use the most often are really, you know, anxiety, depression, and bipolar. Uh, and then maybe the fourth is psychosis, people that hear voices or, or have bizarre or delusional thoughts. But if you really think about it, there's, there's essentially about four very common things that will occur about 95% of the time. Um, I think with respect to medications, what ends up happening, I think whenever we hear horror stories, in my experience, it's always been around two common mistakes. And I'm curious to hear Chris's thoughts on this as well. But oftentimes what I think happens is someone's, someone's pretty sick and they could be depressed or they could be bipolar and they take a medication which doesn't exactly, which helps a little bit, but doesn't fully make them better <clears throat> to be sick. And then they think that that medicine is what's causing it. You know, the, the best example I, I'll remember from medical school was, you know, ashtrays don't cause lung cancer. You know, and everybody that there's a lot of stories about lithium, for example, where people will say, oh, my God, I knew somebody that was on lithium and they had this horrible outcome. They attempted suicide. That medicine made them terrible. 
the reality, I think, in 95% of cases is that it's almost like you have a terrible migraine and you only took a small dose of an Advil. And then to conclude that the Advil made your migraine worse is not really necessarily the fair assessment. The other thing that I often see um, that's essential, I think, to the work that, that people like Chris and I do is in psychiatry, the key distinction, I think, is always deciding if somebody's if somebody's bipolar or unipolar depressed. That's a very essential bifurcation in our line of work where the treatment for someone that's bipolar is very different than the treatment for somebody that's unipolar. And a lot of times people that are just that, that have depression and anxiety can almost look like they're bipolar. And sometimes people that are bipolar can look like they have just depression and just anxiety. And the most common example that comes to mind for me is, you know, you have young children. Usually this is where you hear the scary stories that somebody young was put on an antidepressant, usually Prozac or something like that, because the healthcare providers don't realize that this person is bipolar yet. And indeed, if you take somebody that's bipolar and you put them on an antidepressant, they definitely can get worse, not better. So really, those two things really guide a lot of what I do and, and a lot of the detective work that we do to understand, you know, does this person need a mood stabilizer for bipolar or do they need an antidepressant for depression? And I think a lot of the scary things arise when, when that's mixed up. Yeah, I would, I would uh, reinforce that idea that di the, the diagnosis needs to be as established as uh, well as possible. Uh, as physicians, we use a differential uh, order of diagnoses uh, and try to apply that in a safe way. Every patient is an empirical trial with a medication. Um, and so in order not to commit the error of treating someone with bipolar with an antidepressant, um, we, we may start with uh, a mood stabilizing medication or for that matter, uh, an antipsychotic um, as a way of just trying to tease out the range of symptoms that are going on and also to assess their reaction and their, their uh, uh, acceptance of the condition as well as we go. Um, so some of the wording you guys are using, so like mood stabilizers, antidepressants, antipsychotics, um, can you kind of go into, you know, how these medications work and what the differences are between them? So for me, I, I, the, the, one of the jokes are in, in medical circles, they, they say dermatologists have like two kinds of medicines that they give you. And it's a matter of like, which one are they going to give you? And it's basically either moisturizers or steroids. <laughs> Most things dermatologic will generally respond to one of those two things. Um, I think in our, in our line of work, I joke that the two things that we really have fundamentally are basically antidepressants. And those are medicines like Prozac, Zoloft, uh, Effexor, Paxil's, Lexapro, you, you know, SSRIs or SNRIs, those are the antidepressants. And then in the other camp, you basically have the mood stabilizers. Um, the mood stabilizers are things that block dopamine. Um, they can also be anticonvulsant medications, and they can also be lithium. But essentially, I think for, for most, in most cases these days, I, I don't know how, I don't know in Chris's practice, but most of my patients that are bipolar, Usually, we'll start with you know some dopamine blocker, which will be something like uh, Abilify, maybe Latuda is, a, is one that we've used a bunch now. Seroquel is excellent for sleep. But the point being that a mood stabilizer 
kind of brackets mood from above and below, whereas an antidepressant just kind of supports from below. And if you're, if you're bipolar and you're put on an antidepressant, you run some risk of running too high. We're seeing an exacerbation of whatever, whatever symptoms were bothering you in the first place. So that for me, at least, the key difference is really, does this person need a mood stabilizer or, does, or do they need an antidepressant? Yeah, I would add a third class to that, uh, the anxiolytics, that the medications that treat anxiety, uh, which run the risk of dependency and addiction. Uh, again, uh, uh, med medications, from my perspective, are about stabilizing the distress uh, which patients come in with. And uh, uh, underneath that layer of anxiety, trying to understand what is what is driving this uh, uh, internal psychic congestion and uh, what is our next what, what is the next uh, stage of, of treatment so to speak and that and that involves a, uh, a pretty robust form of therapy of some sort uh, one where you're trying to strike up an alliance with your patient and uh, gain their trust and uh, demonstrate the benefits of medication uh, in, in an effort to try to help them accept both the condition and what the medication is and is not doing for them. I guess a follow-up question uh, just about what you're touching on a little bit is the purpose of psychiatric medications. Like, um, obviously, they're not meant to <laughs> make symptoms disappear. But, um, you know, why why would someone be put on a medication um, as like, how does that, um, help in their healing? So I, the, you know, to, to answer the, the immediate answer that comes to my mind is, you know, you, you can have a root canal with anesthesia or without, um, you can, you know, you, it can go either way. Um, one process is going to be potentially a lot more harrowing and, and anxiety provoking than the other. Um, you know, I, I think some of the some of the experiences people have are very difficult and very painful, and sometimes they're so painful that people can't even approach the the, the issue to do the work. Um, it's so frightening and so so difficult that that the the best answer is you know sweeping under the rug, and indeed I think in 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 our work you know we see people where the, the pile of dirt under the rug has become so big that you can't close the door anymore. And that's when, you know, either they have panic attacks or there's some dysfunction in their romantic life or in their work life or in their family life. And it's gotten to be where they can't sleep at night, you know, and, and that's the point where I think I, I think people rightfully seek help at that time. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in people's ability and, and the mind's ability to, to heal itself. But I also think, you know, some of us are wired biologically differently than everyone else. You know, there's people that are going to have extensive family histories of depression, alcoholism, bipolar disorder, you know, and there's a clear genetic component. Um, and add to that, I, I think there's also people that are, you know, particularly sensitive and they feel things a lot more than everybody else. Um, what, what, what hurts me the most is seeing people uh, try to rough it through very tough situations by just sticking it out and never thinking to see a doctor. And I think there's many people suffering in Alcoholics Anonymous, white knuckling it through abstinence, where their drinking was really to treat a symptom, more so than, than actual drinking. I think there's also many people staying up late at night at 2 a.m. trying to meditate using a calm app or something like that, 
for the third year in a row because they refuse to see a doctor. And I think there's a lot of unnecessary suffering while at the same time recognizing that we are all biologically wired different. And some of us can actually be wired to be anxious, insomniac, depressed, you know, and, and at what point do you decide to wear glasses to correct your vision? I would say think of the psychiatric of a psychiatric condition as an, uh, a state of repressed feeling. That is, we go through many things in life, uh, uh, traumatic attachments, growing up with parents that don't understand us or don't want to, or uh, dysfunctional relationships in general create uh, feelings which we do not uh, or should not have or tried not to, to deal with at the time. And so we acquire this and accumulate it over our lifetime, uh, ultimately to manifest as a symptom of sorts, even the psychoses. If, if uh, someone's genetics are so predisposed, we can become uh, psychotic if there is a um, predisposition in that regard, or bipolar, or anything to contain the burgeoning affect, the burgeoning feelings uh, that we have not come to realize were there. Um, anxiety is often a, a, an early symptom of that, and then you get sort of long-standing outcomes like depression and uh, OCD and, uh, uh, and, and bipolar, as I said, or, or for that matter, schizophrenia or the psychoses. <clears throat> and so as we're trying to tease that apart, we're using uh, you know, the medication to sort of get them past that point of resistance and hopefully reveal or cathart, use that term, the uh, hidden feelings and impulses that we've all stored up and are just, I want to say, don't want to say ready to explode, but certainly congest a, an already overwrought mind <clears throat> until there is, until there is some relief with letting this, letting this out. To, to Chris's point, I just, just to clarify my, the analogy I gave earlier about the anesthetic also, I think as, as, invested and in, in caring psychiatrists, you know, I, I think it, it's really important to, to, for people to realize our goal in our work is not to let people forget about their problems. Um, if anything, you, from that anesthesia model, the goal is to make it hurt a little bit less so you can actually work with the problem, um, which, which I think was difficult. Yeah, but pain is, pain is inevitable. Uh, Try, uh, the, the goal is to minimize the suffering or reduce the suffering that they've already been through. But pain, pain, pain has to be titrated to some extent, and the medications can help to, uh, you know, adjust one's capacity for tolerating that pain until the the goal of of self awareness and fulfillment and joy can come through eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and. I can attest to that as well, just, um, you know, knowing that without being um, treated with medications first before doing some of the uh, therapy and healing work that I'm doing now, I know it would have been too much to kind of bring all of this up to the surface without having some of the help that I do get from medications. And I don't think people kind of realize that connection. I think some people think taking a medication is like um, 
almost lazy or like trying to like get rid of your problems. But in reality, it's like helping you be able to face the things that you need to face so you can feel good even without medication. I, I, I think you're right. And it, it's so sad. I got to tell you, I, because I, indeed, I think there's so many people that are just white knuckling it and just struggling through a lot of difficulty. To me, it, it's almost like it, it's like being nearsighted and refusing to wear glasses, you know, and and I think we, we really need to do a lot around removing the stigma around medication. Um, I think both uh, I, society has gotten to a point where we're further removed from our peace of mind and our ability to self-heal because we're so damn busy. The smartphone has been the ultimate creation that completely took us out of the moment. You know, the, the days of standing online and just thinking about the conversation you had or the days of walking to your car and wondering about what you want to do next and where you want to go have now been replaced by, you know, inboxes and voicemails, text messages, tweets, and so on. And we're just constantly distracting ourselves, not doing the work. And that's an inevitable fact, I think. I don't think we're ever going to go backward. But to think that we can go into this new world without additional tools and support, eyeglasses for our minds, I, I think is naive. And I think it, it results in a lot of suffering when people, when people refute that. Mm -hmm. I think an important part of the therapy is uh, the consent process uh, for taking medications to understand that this is not a panacea or uh, you'll, you're going to be dependent on this for the rest of your life in a uh, kind of an ad addictive manner, but to understand that there is going to be some effort on your part, on one's part, uh, to realize the benefit and extend the benefit beyond the medication. So it's, it's, it's kind of like an understanding. There, there will be some effort on, on their part to uh, uh, make changes or examine issues or uh, try to work with uh, the, the, inqui the inquiry about their condition so that they can start to invent, reinvent themselves. Yeah, it's not easy. I think Chris is right. I, I, I think, you know, that, that interplay between the medication and the therapy and doing the quote-unquote work is so essential. Um, unfortunately, I think in, in various medical or psychiatric models, the answer is the psychiatrist writes the antidepressants and see you back in yeah. two months. You know, see, see you in two months. Like, here, you, you should feel better in, in a month. Um, I, I think that that really sells short a lot of the benefit that that psychiatrists and mental health providers can do. Um, and truly, I think there is this interplay between both the medication and the therapy around it. Well, perhaps ultimately disappointment and rejection of the process. So people in a way get to a point of being deprived of the of real effective work. So uh, ultimately, I mean, if it's just the medication, there is going to be disappointment and, uh, and rejection of the process. Um. A quick follow-up question. I'm just curious um, because in my experience, um, psychiatry and therapy have always kind of been two separate things and my therapist and psychiatrist kind of collaborate and talk to each other every now and then. Um, but is it is it becoming more common for psychotherapy and psychiatry to exist like in the same space by the same person or is it still very much like it's two separate uh like treatment components uh the answer as far as i i would say is yes and then i say that generally and ambiguously i think 
you know what feels right is that the, the person prescribing the medication should have some decent insight into your life. That just feels right. You know, like they should know that you broke up with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever, like you lost your job. They should be aware of these things. It shouldn't just be, you know, how much Zoloft did you take? Did you miss a dose? And are you having any side effects? And and does your therapist doing well? I, it, it's so nuanced. And truly, I think psychiatry is as much a, an art as it is a science. And being an art, I think you really need to take in those extra data points. And I, I would much rather hear it directly from my patient than have to wait and speak with a therapist. Of course, we collaborate all the time. But for me, especially when we're making changes to medications or, or even making lifestyle recommendations, I, I think it's so essential to just, you, you got to know the person. I think that that therapeutic bind is, is essential. Yeah, there was a major study a couple of decades ago uh, by an insurance company of all of all uh, organizations um, demonstrating that when the therapy is done by the same person prescribing the medication, the outcomes were more successful. Um, uh, this has been called split therapy where, you know, someone would do the, 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 the psychotherapy or the, uh, uh, the, the talk therapy, so to speak, where the, uh, therapist, where the psychiatrist would have a very limited period of time to, uh, you know, spit out the prescription and uh, uh, sort of explain the consent and what this is all about, which is, in my mind, very inadequate at the time. That's the reason I chose to try to keep it all under one roof and uh, and and be competent in uh, both the pharmacologic and psychotherapy end of things. This is a model that was uh, uh, sort of forced by the I presume forced by the the financial issues uh, around therapy, uh, unfortunately, and uh, and I think we've seen a uh, we've seen very different outcomes. We're we're still trying to see uh, if there are other uh, therapies that might be effective with medication along the way, but it, it involves combining the two, and there has to be active collaboration between the people. Not, not to get on a big tangent here, but I, I think a lot of the work right now around psychedelic psychotherapy, which is slowly emerging, really speaks to that to that reality that you can't yeah. just take mushrooms on your own and, and expect it to be a positive experience. And that people that really need help and people that really benefit from these new and emerging therapies, it really is this marvelous sandwich of like very tight therapy around very powerful medicine. But one without the other is, is not effective. And I think in some ways that kind of like, that's the, the, that's the, the core really of what we do in our, what we've been doing for, you know, decades in our work, um, which is basically like really like the, the therapy and the medicine do work together. I think that's a good segue into kind of my next set of questions. Um, I'm just wondering kind of, the history around uh, the administration of psychiatric medications and just uh, psychiatry in general. Um, like how long has psychiatry been around? How long have the medications been around? And how has our understanding of these medications and practices developed over time? So I, to me, I, I think, you know, the human mind is the ultimate frontier biologically. Right. It, we do not understand any organ, you know, as poorly as we understand the human brain. So 
psychiatry historically with its medications and it's you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest movies and uh and all you know the scary visions of the person drooling in the corner and sedated you know we psychiatry gets a bad rap i think because it works on the most difficult organ that the most complex organ that there is and indeed i think for many many years and to a great extent even now we still kind of have like blunt tools to do very precise work um that makes that can make it look sloppy sometimes you know what i mean where it's like And again, things have gotten much better recently with better medications as the science has progressed. But indeed, there were times when like, you know, Thorazine was like the only medicine that we had available, which is a very strong antipsychotic that's sedating and leaves people brain dead and drooling. Um, You know, there was a time when uh, psychiatry was trying to do frontal lobotomies on people to get them to, you know, to, to reduce their depression or to reduce their psychosis. And these were things that were just now looking back, I mean, terrible. But in fairness, at the time, that was all that was available, you know. So I think a lot of the stigma also in psychiatry is like, yeah, it seems like in the field, you guys didn't have very good tools to help people. But I think it's worth bearing in mind that, you know, we're also working with the most complex organ system we know of. And unfortunately, we don't have like just a pill you could take that will lower your cholesterol, you know, or, or a test that we can take to detect that you have high cholesterol. So. Thankfully, I do think the field has moved along tremendously. And I can tell you, at least in my line of work, you know, uh, I, I couldn't go to bed at night or, or continue doing the job that I do if the net, if, if, if in net I was causing more harm than good to people. And I think there's people that have gone, you know, on, you know, there, there's uh, researchers that have gone on and said SSRIs are bunk. They don't work. They don't help anybody. I can't tell you, you know, how many people in my practice, for example, have definitely benefited from that like night and day documented results that that just make my day when I see people doing better. Again, when we can achieve reducing the distress, uh, there's a better chance of a person discovering how they can uh, have agency over their their uh, state of mind and joy and, uh, and happiness in life. Uh, they find a way, it, it sort of clears the fog of the distress until they can understand it a little bit more each time in the therapy process. Uh, I mean, the original theory by uh, in, in earlier psychiatry was, uh, and, and it still is, a uh, condition of repressed feelings uh, in the service of stabilizing function. And, but uh, that can be so repressed and so uh, locked away that we sort of lose functionality in our mind and uh, start to lose our path along the way. Uh, so a, a lot of focus has been on how to relieve the distress and regulate the resistance to understanding oneself. Resistance has been the object of all, most of the therapies I'm aware of. Um, so again, reducing the distress with antipsychotics, originally uh, augmentation agents for anesthesia, in the 50s, and then the antidepressants, uh, beginning with uh, MAO inhibitors uh, from a medication standpoint. In uh, late 50s and early 60s, the tricyclic antidepressants, lithium, followed a few years later. And then uh, the, uh, I don't want to say revolution, but the more uh, contemporary medication, starting with Prozac, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. 
and subsequent to that. So we've, we've, we've gotten more specific as far as receptor activity or understanding how affecting certain molecules on the cell surface make differences in, in how people feel and feel less distressed. Uh, to, to Alex's point, SSRIs are very subtle, uh, but, they, but they do work and re, in sort of regulating the anxiety. Uh, they're somewhat dissociative, dissociating and uh, limiting the, the acute nature of stress such that a person can sort of, sort of relax themselves and sort of be okay with it in, in, in themselves so that they can start to understand where is this distress coming from. Uh, and that's the downside with SSRIs and that is the, the dissociating effect of it. Uh, people often talk about that as a side effect, sexual dysfunction and so forth. Uh, but that's, that's a reasonable trade-off so that they can get this, uh, this sort of higher level perspective of their situations and make changes as they need. And then eventually a trial without the medication to see how much they've, they've come. Um, so moving kind of back to talking about stigma, um, around the like administration and use of these medications, um, you know, when you go online, you can see that there is a lot of debate around whether or not they should be used, who they should be used for. Um, and I'm wondering, um, just because you guys are in the field of psychiatry, what are, I feel like there aren't two sides to this argument. I feel like there's a bunch of different perspectives. So can you talk about what some of those um, different kind of arguments and opinions, like why do people think uh, psychiatric medications should be used and why do some people think they shouldn't be used? I mean, I, I, I think for me that the biggest stigma is, is probably from the older days where truly, you know, the only people that ended up getting help were co called, quote unquote, crazy. Um, and everybody kind of has this attitude that, you know, only crazy people go on medications. Um, so that kind of binary thinking, I think, gets people in a lot of trouble. The other common viewpoint that I hear of is this sort of like the, the one that you described earlier, Jade, I think it was, you know, don't don't be weak. You know, why, why do you need to be on a medicine? You should be able to tough through this on your own. Um, but to me, both of those are very uh, unempathic, un uncaring approaches because it's like telling somebody with a, with a broken leg to, to kind of keep, keep marching, you know. I think it may also have something to do with people's difficulty uh, asking for help, realizing that they are... Uh, uh, more dependent than they thought. It's it's a scary notion. Uh, and then you know, and then going to a doctor and considering uh, uh, an intervention like that. Even therapy can be invasive and feel uh, feel like an assault, especially with people with uh, with with trauma histories. Uh, so so it's realizing uh, you, you really can't do this all by yourself. Uh, this, uh, our minds, uh, I, I would say the human mind is a collective organ. It, it involves, uh, realizing the necessity of being with people, uh, being alone is a very toxic state of mind. Um, everyone has a connection. We, we, we absolutely need that to sustain ourselves. To that point also, I think the, the other issue that we run into with regard to seeking help is that, you know, if, if you have a broken leg, an x-ray will show you that you have a broken leg. 
if you have a cardiac arrhythmia, an EKG will show you that definitively. If you have high cholesterol, like a blood test will tell you you have high cholesterol. The problem with psychiatry is it's so darn subjective. You know, and, and you're left, until you enter, until you see a, a healthcare provider, you're left to figure it out on your own. When When is it bad enough? You know? And that's where, for me, one core thing, at least in my in my training, that I hammer that I hammered that I had hammered into me, is at least something at least as simple as sleep. To me, is a vital sign. It is one of the few objective metrics that we have in psychiatry that you could say, hey, if you're sleeping less than six hours a night for too long, you know, like that that's not normal, and that's time to get help. Um, Thankfully, there's also online tests you could take for depression and anxiety and bipolar. But I think the other thing, aside from sleep, is uh, having that cutoff of uh, causing dysfunction. A lot of the things in the DSM, really, it, it really comes down to, you know, you, you, don't have a, you don't have insomnia until there's a resulting consequence of your insomnia. You don't have alcoholism until there's like clear, you know, ramifications of your drinking. You don't have depression until you can't get out of bed, you can't go to work. You're not eating. Um, so I, I, I do think, you know, it, it helps, I think, for everybody to think if they're wondering whether or not to approach the system or to get help. The question is, are, are you, is your daily life really impacted by your symptoms? Because if it is, then, yeah, that, that's a sign that it's time to go. Um, and if even that decision is too hard to make, I would still bring it back to sleep and tell anybody that if you're sleeping too little or sleeping too much consistently, there's something going on. Yeah, and I think another aspect of the stigma um, may be that there's a lot of people who have distrust in terms of medical professionals in general. Um, I think especially for like the Black community, there's a lot of distrust when it comes to getting any type of medical help. Um, And I feel like that's also another component. Like people are genuinely like afraid that they're this medication is going to alter them in some way that they don't want to be altered. Um, so being altered, you know, definitely uh, is the last thing I think I, I'm trying to do for my patients. You know, the, the goal is not to, I, I don't think the goal is to blind people or to anesthetize them. The, the goal is to make it possible for them to do the work in their lives, in their therapy, in their family relations, to, to get things better where, where it hurt too much before. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that I, I don't, I don't often see medications changing people's personalities. What I do see more often is the underlying illness may continue and that may change people's personalities. Um, you may have people that even though they got put on a medicine, a mood stabilizer, continue to act out or have rage episodes and everyone's immediate response is that look what the medicine did to this person. And that's not always right, you know, or, or somebody that's had schizophrenia Schizophrenia is scary. Unfortunately, it's very rare. But schizophrenia is a neurodegenerative disease. The longer time people spend in a psychotic state, they're getting brain damage. They're going to get decreased performance academically, socially, uh, and in so many other regards. And in that case, the answer when somebody gets put on a medicine to try to alleviate those symptoms isn't to say that this downward path is because of the medicine. Unfortunately, sometimes that downward path is actually because of the illness itself. And again, schizophrenia in particular, psychosis is a very scary one. Unfortunately, it is rare. But even in those instances, there's good data that the more we can prevent the psychotic state, the less damage is done. 
And the same, I think, has been said about depression, where the longer, you know, the longer somebody stays depressed, all those negative brain pathways are getting reinforced and, and neurons are dying in parts of the brain, which can actually make the disease progress further. And in that regard, I think the medicines that we do have available these days um, can, can actually alter the course for some people in, in a positive way. Well, to your point, Jade, I, I don't think there, uh, medicine is not removed from the, uh, the, the social unrest that's going on as well. You know, racism is definitely pervasive and it's, it's created uh, perspective, perspectives on, on the uh, sort of profession in a very unfortunate way. Uh, we, we do have to recognize this in, in ourselves and, and try to overcome it. Yeah, and I, I think um, even having these discussions is just a great way to kind of even just let people know that th th this is something that's being thought about. Um, I think with people, people are like doctors in general. I've heard from a lot of like friends, families, people who have gotten treatment. Doctors can sometimes come off as very like scary and, um, you know, not feeling like they have the same warmth as say like a therapist or, um, or like a healer type of person. And I think conversations like this help with humanizing, um, doctors, psychiatrists and such, um, and kind of help people become more comfortable with, uh, advocating for themselves and, uh, reaching out when, you know, there is an issue that they may need to get more help for. Well, that, in my mind, that's the first order of the first contact with a, pa with a patient who is seeking help, and that is to uh, put them at ease with regard to the process, to, to, to start educating them and informing them of this, this final frontier of the mind, as, as Alex says, and, uh, and not to be uh, to, to, to sort of assure them and uh, allow them to test the process as well until they've achieved a certain level of trust that they can go to the next phase of, of understanding themselves and getting relief. I also, I mean, in, in, in a lot of my work, it's a collaborative model. I'll tell my patients often that, you know, I'm, I'm like your co-pilot, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you what the lay of the land is. I'll point out, you know, what, what's possible, what isn't, but I can't really make you do anything and, and I don't want to do that. You know, um, mm -hmm. I, I'm a, I collaborate often with healers and therapists as well. My, my only concern, uh, I, I think medically speaking at some point, those of us that have licenses, maybe it's therapists, healers, or, or especially psychiatrists, you know, our first concern is always like the patient's health and safety. And maybe the only few times where I might be a bit more direct with my patient is when truly it's like it, it is it is a life threatening matter, or it is a matter where the outcome could be very very different depending on the course taken. And, and I and I think yeah, ultimately it's best if it's done together. But I think it's also our duty to warn people when there is a potential dangerous outcome down the road. Um, everybody wants to hear the right thing. Everybody wants to hear that everything's going to be okay and. And I'm, I'm all for that, but I think equally people deserve to know that there are these pitfalls and these dangerous outcomes that that nobody wants to talk about. But I, I think our duty as, as care providers is to keep the patient informed. Absolutely. 
there, there too, I would say should should go the message of you know don't kill the messenger, you know, because again, j- just like the, the ashtrays and cigarettes example, it's like just just because the doctor tells you this doesn't mean the doctor is the bad guy or the bad person. You know, what I mean, it, it's more the, the the physician just happens to be the one that that had to make you aware of this fact. And listen, I mean, everything every provider can be different. There's people that might overreact to relatively minor things. <clears throat> But there's doctors that know when to react and when not to, you know. Um, but indeed, I, I think even in, in the best relationships I've had with patients, they'll, they'll, I'll always be very direct if there's danger. Okay, great. I think this is a good place to start to wrap up. Um, before we end, I just want to ask if you guys, um, you know, for people who may want to uh, learn more about you and the work that you do, do you guys have any um like places that you want to plug in for people to look at? Sure. I mean, I, I, on my website, uh, siliconpsych.com, we have a blog, a running blog of like all the articles that, that I've done. And, uh, and and there's a lot of references there, pieces uh, writ- written about a variety of topics. And that's on, on the website, siliconpsych.com. I, I don't have a website currently, and uh, but I do have two groups that uh, if uh, – if there's any interest in the, uh, certainly can get hold of you by my email. Okay, great. Um, thank you so much for um, having this discussion. I I really enjoyed it and I, I learned a lot and um, I'm excited to share this um, with my audience. Thank you so much for having us, Jade. And I, the, the only, the, the one message I, I, that I'd like to just send out to everybody is just that like, we, we live in fast times. We've gone so far from our days of, you know, being cave people. We need help. Our, our brains are our most precious asset these days, and the demands on us are unprecedented. Uh, we just weren't designed to do this kind of stuff, and that's where it's not a crime, and it shouldn't be stigmatized to you know medicine and science to to help us better adapt to a time where you know things are changing faster than ever. Um, and to sit and to insist these days that you won't wear eyeglasses is, is a bit is a bit uh, irrational. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. I want to say thank you again to Dr. Dimitriou and Dr. Capel for taking the time to have this conversation with me. If you'd like to check out Dr. Dimitriou's blog, you can go to the description of this episode. There are some really great articles there, so I encourage you guys to check it out. On the next episode for this series, I will be talking to Dr. Kimberly Gordon to talk about the views and stigma around psychiatry and psychiatric meds in communities of color. Don't forget to subscribe so you can get notified when the next episode comes out. And if you have time, please leave a rating and a review. That helps get the information on the show into more ears. Check the description to find more ways to stay up to date with myself and the students of my team. I hope you learned something new today and I'll see you next time. I'm Dr. Mona Lisa and I've been a medical intuitive for over 30 years. Let me help you find new ways to heal physical and emotional problems. Be a part of my Healthy Living Intuitively podcast studio audience every week. 
follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mona Lisa fan page, and Instagram, Dr. Mona Lisa One, to get that information. I answer audience questions, and you can learn from people calling in that might be dealing with the same things that you are. Follow Healthy Living Intuitively, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, and wherever you get your podcasts.